this is Richard Wiseman's On Your Mind with me, psychologist Professor Richard Wiseman. And me, science journalist Marnie Chesterton. And this is the podcast where we delve into the psychology of everyday life and answer your questions about human behaviour. That's right, your questions are at the heart of the show. Simply send a text or voice message to at WisemanPod or head to listentoonyourmind.com and in return you can expect fascinating facts, scintillating science and this might even improve your life. In this episode, we're going to take a look at some of the weirder psychology studies that have been carried out, such as trying to weigh the soul. Or the tale of the talking mongoose, among others. And whether these strange and weird studies have important implications. I have so many questions. Let's get on with the show. Right, where do we begin? Let's start with weighing the soul. Tell me about that. Weighing the soul. I mean, this is one of my favourite weird studies. I must admit, I have got a bit of a, a thing about weird studies. I'm imagining that in your house, there's some sort of filing cabinet with a kind there of... There are several filing cabinets and, in my house. And they've they've got every sort of weird study categorised with evidence and... Yeah, that, it's a bit like that, actually. Mm. Because a lot of psychology is desperately dull. And and so as an undergraduate, I got very excited about psychology because I thought people were quite interesting. And then you started to read about these studies and you go, oh my goodness, only psychologists can take the sort of buzzing wonder of humanity and reduce it to a p-value uh, that's oh. not significant and, and makes you fall asleep by the end of the paper. Yeah. Okay. So you're kind of skewing towards the interesting by collecting all the interesting ones. Yeah, I think so. I mean, even as an undergraduate, I was, I was just interested in stuff that I actually found interesting. Interesting. Who knew? <laughs> Who knew? Uh, and so, and then I did a book called Quackology, which is all about weird studies. And for that, I had to go all the way back into the archives, which weren't digitalized or anything like that. And so I actually actually read journals from like 1900 and, and so on. Which and are so much better. So much better. I think, yeah. And also it was a lot of effort. It was a lot of effort to write and publish a paper. And so you used to think, is this actually worth doing? Where nowadays you can get a study out very quickly and, and uh, put it onto the web. And so people are doing a lot more work, but I'm not certain we're finding out a great deal more about uh, the, the beauty of humanity. But unlike 1907, Duncan MacDougall and his attempt to weigh the human soul, which seems to me a perfectly sensible thing to do. So talk me through this. He thought maybe there is such a thing as a soul. I and... think he was pretty convinced there was a, a soul okay. to be weighed. And then the question becomes, how are you going to do that? And that's an interesting methodological question. It's, it's one that I've set my students several times over the year. How do you go about weighing the human soul? And his thought was that we have a soul when we're living and the soul departs when we die. Oh, I see where this is going. So you need to find a group of people who are close to death and happy to be weighed as they die. And that's what he did. That's what he did. Six people. Six people. And I don't know quite how he introduced the topic of conversation to them. He was in a sort of care home. Yeah. And he went around saying, you're quite close to death, according to the, the medics. As you die, would it be all right if we were to wheel you rapidly out onto the big weighing machine, which weighs the bed and you? And as you pass away, we'll see a reduction in weight. And that's the weight of the human soul. And people just went... Yeah, go on. Six of them did. Six of them did. We don't know what the others said. So he did that and it worked out very well for him. Uh, he averaged the weight drop and it comes out at 21 grams. Wow. 21 grams is, so, is what your soul weighs. And 
how long a time period between before death and after death? Is he weighing you two seconds later and you've lost 21 grams? Or is he weighing you five minutes later? I'm just trying to mentally work out how you would have lost 21 grams. Right. Because there was criticism of this study along the lines of of what you're saying there. I don't know the timing involved. I think it was pretty short. I think it was, yes, I'm fine. What's the problem? And then a few moments later, you're dead. And in those few moments, he's, he's recorded the weight loss. Okay. So it's a rather curious one. That 21 grams then becomes the title of a big Hollywood film uh, starring Sean Penn and Naomi Watts about weighing the human soul. So it lives on in popular culture. So he publishes his study and then critics go, hold on a second, this could be the weight of the human soul or it could be that as you die, you sweat. And what you're seeing is the evaporation of quite a large amount of moisture. And when they studied it a little bit more closely, they realised it was the latter. So actually, what he's really studying was the amount of moisture that leaves the body at the period of death. That's a little bit disappointing. Well, it was for him. Yeah. And for the six people involved. Well, you know, that's still a contribution to science, right? We now know that you sweat 21 grams of moisture around your death. We also know... That, because it was then repeated with dogs who famously don't sweat, that's why they pant. Is that why someone repeated it with dogs? Yes. Okay, gotcha. So you repeat it with dogs and you see no loss at all. Oh, that's and so, so pleasing. And so the critics said, there we go. And the believers said, that proves that dogs, dogs have no soul. So- oh my, this is so good. So yes, that's 21 grams. Yeah. That was all the, the, a long time ago, 1907. So that's a, quite a strange study. The other one, which I'm rather fond of, is Hans Berger, who is a German medic who has a telepathic experience. So this is sort of 1910s. He falls off his horse. At the same time, his sister, who's on the other side of Germany, suddenly gets a pain. And it turns out that she gets the pain in her body at the precise moment that he falls off the horse. Spooky. So he thinks, somehow I sent a signal to my sister. Best thing to do, he thinks, is dedicate my life to creating a machine that measures brain waves leaving the body. Yeah, I mean, that's totally logical. Absolutely. Who wouldn't do that? And it's a really hard thing to do because brains are very well insulated from the outside world. So he pretty much locks himself away in his lab and spends many a year working away trying to develop the sensors so that he can measure a brain wave leaving the body. Okay. He fails to do that. However, he succeeds in creating the EEG machine. He's the person, 1920s, who actually manages to amplify a brain signal enough to be able to detect it on the outside of the the scalp. But that that wasn't enough for him. He wanted to detect it, say, metres away detached from the body. He wanted to be able to to, to detect it leaving a body and then leaving a brain and then arriving at another brain. Mm. And he never did that. So he never proved the existence of telepathy. But actually his lasting contribution to science and medicine was the EEG machine, which we use all the time. Oh, wow. Another example of uh, the paranormal contributing to mainstream science. There's a theme developing here, Richard. There is. It's almost like this is a particular subset of psychology that you're interested in. It is. It's a theme, though, that I'm about to ruin with my next favourite study. Go on, then. Which is my all-time favourite study. And this is related to one of my sort of heroes... Because most magicians, if you ask them who their hero magician would be, it's Harry Houdini, escapologist mm-hmm. and magician. And I would go or with Paul another... Paul Daniels. Uh, Paul Daniels. I would go with another Harry, 
there's a British Harry, it was Harry Price. Never went, heard of him. Exactly. So when I was doing my undergraduate stuff in London Uni, I found out that Harry Price, who was my kind of like, I, he just blew my mind. He was a, um, around the 1930s, he was a ghost hunter, and he did these incredible, amazing studies. He left his library to the University of London, and it was in a locked room on the eighth floor of Senate House. Were you in Senate House? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so, magic. So, so you could befriend the librarian, and he'd take you up in this tiny lift, and there was a wire cage room, and he got the key to it, and he'd open it up, and inside there was all Harry Price's photographs, glass slides, press cuttings, books, research notes, and you could just sit there all day looking at the strange studies that he carried out in the 1930s. Why was it locked? Well, because it's worth a fortune. Oh, is it? Yeah, okay. because he's that's all the original stuff there. It's amazing. And at one point, I mean, it wasn't, it was fairly well kind of catalogued, but not brilliantly catalogued. At one point, I opened a box and there's a whole load of letters between Houdini and Harry Price that no one had looked at before. So they were sitting in there. It's amazing. It's an amazing place. The the first thing that Price did, one of the things that Price did that I, that I loved, was that he found an ancient manuscript. And according to this ancient manuscript, which was German, was that if you took a goat and you covered it with a cloth and you did certain other things to it, anointed it with bat blood and, and so on, and then said this ancient spell, then it would turn into a prince. So most of us would go, I don't think that's very likely to happen. But also, he decided... Can you vary it so that you don't get a prince? I mean... I think it's pretty set in stone. I think you get a prince okay. or nothing. Okay. That's how those spells work. What if you wanted a princess? No. Okay. Um, so he thought, best thing to do, go to Germany, recreate this, and see whether the goat turns into a prince. So he does that, and he, he marks out... There's wonderful photos of it on the internet. He marks out a big kind of magic circle. Uh, there's all the press there. He gets the goat. He gets the fair maiden. He's got the cloth. Uh, he covers up the goat. He bat says, blood. Bat blood, all of that. Uh, soot, I think, is in there as well. Um, he says the ancient spell, and he whips away the cloth, and it's still a goat. He made a film about it, and there's a lovely little bit of footage where the subtitle comes up, The Goat Remains a Goat. <laughs> and what was interesting, it made sort of headlines all around the world, as you'd expect it to. Sorry, yeah, sorry. sorry. Yeah. Goat Remains Goat. The, the is, Goat Remains a Goat. Is a headline? I mean, why? Yeah. Okay. Because nothing happened. Yes. And so... That's the, not news. Discuss. Well... Slow news day. Slow maybe. news day. Yeah. The BBC were there on, oh, in, in force. <laughs> in in which case, I changed my opinion. <laughs> what a brilliant idea! <laughs> so they were there, and so the goat remains a goat, but it becomes a very famous goat. So a magician buys the goat and tours with the goat around the music halls, carrying out an illusion where every night the goat did turn into a prince. <gasps> So it became a very famous goat. Oh, I love it. So Harry Price was doing all this weird stuff, and he was also the person behind Baldy Rectory, the most haunted house in Britain, very long story. Uh, so we did all that. As an undergraduate, I loved it all. But my favourite thing of all is Price investigating the talking mongoose. The what? The talking mongoose. Is a mongoose like a, it's like a ferret? Weasel. Yeah, it's, yeah. Like a, it's like a weasel. Okay. Yeah. So this goes back to the Isle of Man, that sort of hotbed of paranormal activity. I can't tell if you're lying or not. This is all true. Okay. This is all true. Isle of Man is a hotbed of paranormal activity. That's not true. I was being okay. sarcastic. <laughs> okay. So My James, LIDAR is correct. Okay. Yes. Uh, James and Margaret Irvin move in to the uh, Isle of Man and they buy a cottage in the middle of absolutely nowhere. And this is sort of 1910s again. 
Mm. It's windswept, it's cold, it's got no electricity, it's not very pleasant to live in, they're there with their daughter. And what James decides to do is put up panelling to try and insulate the house a little bit. So there's about a three or four inch gap between the outside of the house and the panelling. And that matters because that's where the mongoose lives. So the mongoose lives in the gap between the panel and the outside of the house and therefore is able to run around the house. Okay. Making him quite a difficult mongoose to track down. Yeah. And you might think it's quite a normal mongoose, but what they realise is that it's a talking mongoose. Of course it is. Yes. So, um, and it talks in a human voice, as you might expect. Does it have an accent? It's, it's got a quite a high-pitched voice. So okay. it kind of speaks like that. Okay. Yeah. And then there's a lot of debate about the what the mongoose is called. Some of us, and the point is myself here, refer to the mongoose as Gef, the talking mongoose. And another group of mongoose, talking mongoose fans, mongoose fans. Mongooses. 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 Another group of people into the case uh, refer to him as Jeff. Okay. And it's a big debate. I won't speak to the Jeff people and uh, they won't yeah. speak to me because I refer to him as Gef. Okay. Yeah. Jeff is the name, though, and Gef is just not... Yeah, I think technically, in terms of evidence, they're correct. This is the GIF-JIF exactly. debate. It's the same thing. Okay. Yes. So I always call him Gef the Talking Mongoose. I think technically it's Jeff the Talking Mongoose. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so... It turns out that Talking Mongoose is born in New Delhi, uh, 1852, and he can tell jokes, he can converse in several languages. Oh, wow. Yes, he's quite an intelligent mongoose. Polyglot. Yes, and uh, he attracts quite a lot of attention from journalists who go to the Isle of Man to meet Gef, Jeff, the, uh, the Talking Mongoose. My favourite one from the Manchester Daily Dispatch has a chat with the mongoose and the mongoose recommends the winner, or says this is going to be the horse that's going to win, uh, the Grand National uh, for 1932. The journalist puts on the bet. The horse doesn't even place. Oh, curse you, Geth. Yes. Moral. Uh, so <laughs> Do not take like, bookie advice from a, from a talking, talking mongoose. mongoose. Uh, so Price sends over a kind of military colonel out of the army and he comes back and sort of says, well, it's sort of curious case. Were they actually seeing the mongoose? Mm, or were they just talking to bits the of the family wall? definitely were claiming to see the mongoose. Okay. And sometimes they would pluck hair from the mongoose and they sent that to Harry Price to be analysed. And when it was sent off to experts, they said this is the hair from a, a dog not a mongoose. Okay. And the family did have a dog. Okay. Yeah. So that's not compelling evidence for the talking mongoose. So the mongoose might just not exist at all? If you're a sceptic. Okay. No one bought a mongoose at any point and put it in a wall cavity? Not such. Okay. No, fine. no. But some people are hearing the voice. Okay. So, okay. so the family are seeing the mongoose. Some of the people going over there are definitely hearing the mongoose. Speaking like that. Okay. And uh, so, so we don't know what's happening there. And so one possibility is their daughter is throwing her voice. Yeah. But it's quite hard to do that. She had no training as a ventriloquist. And so it's it's quite difficult to work out quite what they were hearing. So how does Harry Price investigate? Well, Price decides to go over with Richard Lambert, who is a, another investigator. And they spend a couple of days there and Geff doesn't turn up at all. So they come back and write a book about this, saying they think that there's not much evidence for the talking mongoose. And this is where, for me, it gets quite interesting. Go on. So Richard Lambert is on the board of the British Film Institute. 
And another quite senior person says, hold on a second, Lambert isn't really fit to be part of the British Film Institute because he believes in a talking mongoose. So Lambert's rather upset about that and he sues for defamation. Oh, wow, okay. Yes. Ends up in the High Court. The court find in his favour and he's given, in today's money, the equivalent of £350,000. Fair enough. And then the film about Geff has just come out. So Simon Pegg has just made a film about Geff the Talking Mongoose. Wow. So he's, he still lives on. Amazing. They never found him, right? Never found him and never really figured out what was going on. So there's one theory, which is the mother and daughter were kind of fooling the husband in order to try and get him to move away from this windswept cottage in the middle of absolutely nowhere. Mm. Another is that the daughter was creating the, the voice as almost like a joke with just a way of passing time. And you get this a lot in poltergeist cases. Then it starts to be taken seriously and she can't come out. Yeah, you can't back out then. And, and then it becomes worse and worse and, and so on. Um, but no, eventually they, they move away and that's it. But people still do research trips to the place of the talking mongoose over in the Isle of Man. Again, my take home is that you can go visit the Isle of Man to try and find a talking mongoose, find nothing and still write a best-selling book out of it. That's correct. Yep. Yes. Yeah, yep. there's hope for all of us. Yeah, exactly. So a few years ago at the Edinburgh Fringe, I joined up with the Creative Martyrs, who are a musical duo, very talented, and we did a whole show about Harry Price. And then we had one section of it on, on Geff, the talking mongoose. And they created these wonderful uh, bits of music uh, throughout the, the whole show. And this is uh, part of their song, On Geff. I guess that's Geth, making that noise, scuttling all about the walls at night. I guess it's Geth, with the high-pitched squeak. Oh, indeed, yes, that's Geth, all right. I guess it's Geth, making that mess, knocking things around then taking flight. I guess it's Geth, making mischief, but always staying out of sight. This is Richard Wiseman's On Your Mind, and in this episode, we're talking about weird studies. And if you want us to keep doing this, we need your help and support. Please review us and share the episodes with your friends, and please subscribe too. It helps other people find us. My other favourite one is Leon Festinger, who's very famous in psychology for creating cognitive dissonance theory, which is... is that where you can't think of two exactly. things at the same time? Yeah, you can't hold two beliefs in your head is the theory which contradict one another. And so what you end up doing is changing one belief or the other or pretending the whole thing doesn't matter. There's all sorts of things you do to resolve that inner conflict. I value conscious animals and their existence. This is a nice bacon sandwich. Exactly. Mm. Yes, yes. Um, so there's all sorts of mental gymnastics you might do to square that circle, you know, in, in terms of, oh, the animal's killed in a humane way. Yeah. So he was very interested in, in that in the real world, and this was 1950s. And so what he found was a group of individuals who'd formed a kind of new religious movement, and they had convinced themselves that the aliens were going to come down to Earth and basically take them away to a, a distant planet. And he thought it was unlikely the aliens were going to arrive. And so we wondered what was going to happen to the group once they didn't arrive. Because now you've got this belief in the aliens, but the other belief is, by the way, they haven't turned up. So he joins the group, what was called kind of participant observer stuff, nice. and writes a whole book about it. And he gets to know the group very well. And so it turns out that the aliens are predicted to arrive at a certain point. Yep. 
everyone's very excited about their arrival. The aliens, and these are all kind of messages that are being channeled through the leader of okay. the, uh, the group. Okay. Uh, the aliens have said that no one must wear any metal, so they all cut all the metal off of their clothing, and they all sit there and wait for the aliens. Is there a kind of designated day oh, and yeah. time? Midnight okay. on a particular day. Okay, they're okay, going to come. Okay. And lo and behold, Geff the talking mongoose turns up. No. <laughs> Hello, it's me. Um, the end of the world. It's the end of the world. Uh, so the aliens don't turn up. What a surprise. I know. I, for one, Richard, am very shocked. <laughs> they don't turn up. And the question is what happens to the beliefs of the group? Because now you've got two beliefs. One is, I believe the aliens are there. And the other is, the aliens haven't turned up. Yeah. So the answer is people resolve it in different ways. Some people go, well, turns out there are no aliens, I'm a gullible idiot, and they leave the group. Okay. Some people go, oh, I see what we've done. We kind of pray to sort of save the world, and it's our prayers that save the world, so the aliens don't need to come and take us away. Nice. So this was all wrapped up with the idea that the world's going to end and the aliens are going to take you away before the end of the uh, the world. So they got out of it that way. But my favourite group, and there's not many of them, but a, a few of them within the movement, go, ah, hold on a second, what I need to do is now get out there and convince as many people as possible about the existence of the aliens. And so they go out there and they give seminars and talks trying to get as many people as possible to believe in the aliens. Despite the fact that the aliens didn't turn up when they were supposed to. Correct. Okay. So what they're doing is really interesting. What they're doing is saying, hold on a second, if I can convince lots of people that the aliens exist, it kind of supports my belief. So a way of responding to a lack of evidence is to try and convince as many people as possible about your weird belief. And you get that many, many times. You get it in politics, you get it in religion. That when you're faced with a lack of evidence, rather than change your belief, you try and convince other people to believe in the thing that you believe in in order to support your belief, because that then becomes evidence. How can all these people be wrong? You mentioned politics and religion. I mean, have you seen this in politics? You see it all over the place. When people are confronted with evidence that disconfirms their belief, instead of dropping their belief, they become even more convinced of the idea and they try and convince others because that counts as evidence that their belief is true. In the absence of, quote, actual evidence, what they point to is lots of other people believing it. We can't all be wrong. I have a photo on my phone of the sign on Oxford Street. There's a guy that said the end of the world is coming and he he gave us a date and it was something like the 20th of December 2018. And I stuck it up on social media going, I think this means I don't need to buy Christmas presents or do my tax return. Perfect. I know. I think about it because it pops up every so often and I'm thinking, well, that was a nightmare. Both of those went quite badly. So it's a good example of psychology leading to a counterintuitive endpoint that you think I know what I need to do is just present people with disconfirming evidence. They change their belief. The truth is, for some people, the disconfirming evidence actually leads them to hold that belief in an even stronger way than before and to go out and try and convince as many people as possible. It's still, yeah, if you convince the world that there are aliens, how does that help? I mean, Well, it helps you because you think, how could all these people be wrong? I must be right and they must be right as well. That becomes my new evidence. Okay, that becomes your evidence rather than the presence of aliens in any form. Yeah, and, and also what you have to remember is they didn't get into believing in aliens because of evidence. They got into believing because of something else. I mean, in this instance, is probably group membership, is that if you take people who are socially isolated and suddenly they're part of a group and all you need to do to join that group is believe this rather strange thing, well, now you've got friends and community and, and so on. 
they didn't get there because of evidence for aliens. And so they're not going to get out of it by, by lack yeah. of evidence for okay. aliens. Yeah, that so makes there's lots sense. of social forces being played out. And all of that comes back to Leon Festinger, who did that really early work where instead of just sitting inside the lab, he got out into the real world and started to, to look at people holding quite strange beliefs. And what he found in the 1950s is still affecting us today in terms of religion and politics. There are a lot of psychologists who get out of the lab. I mean, is that is that a kind of earlier trend? You go and embed yourself with these people? Yeah, no, it totally, it totally is. If you, if you look back at some of the classic studies of Zimbardo and Milgram and so on, they were about doing things, at least face-to-face in unusual circumstances, often outside of a lab setting. And then psychology moved much more into the lab, and now it's moved much more online. And and so it's it's kind of tricky because we're moving more and more away from the real world and yet wanting to say something about the real world. And so my argument is always to get away from online and actually to get out of the lab even and into the thing that you want to study, which is people in, in the real world. Um, but psychologists don't like doing that. It's much easier to run an online study and not really kind of come face to face with people. So that's why I love these sorts of studies. Yeah, but Richard, the real world is moving more and more online, so... Well, there, there is there is that, but a lot of it, yeah. yeah so it's also, not, these are really yeah. lovely studies. It's great to think of Harry Price trying to find a talking mongoose or Berger trying to create a machine that measures thought waves or somebody measuring people as they die. These are I mean, wonderful studies. I love the measuring people as they die. I think that's it's just so clever. Yeah, and then in doing these things, actually, often you do find out something quite interesting and important. It's just not what you thought you were going to find out. And so my argument is for more of these sorts of studies. Are there a category of studies that... I mean, after the Second World War, there was the Nuremberg Code that said you can't do this. You you need to really think about the ethics involved in doing any study. And has that impacted the way it, it has? I mean, a lot of the go? ethics stuff came out of Milgram's shock study, which I'm sure we'll talk about uh, on another episode. And and you do, of course, you need to be very careful with participants. My experience has been that people rather like taking part in strange studies and, and having unusual experiences. And you never want to upset anyone or, or, or damage them in any way. But I do think that actually people rather like these things to walk away and go, my goodness, that was rather interesting, instead of I just tick some boxes on an internet site. So yeah, I'm a big fan of this sort of, of early work. And I, and I think it should inspire present-day psychologists. Often doesn't, but I think it should. Podimo and Telltale, this has been Richard Wiseman's On Your Mind. Hosted by Professor Richard Wiseman and Marnie Chesterton. Our producer is Kate White. The executive producers for Podimo are Jake Chudno and Matt White. And for Telltale are Rami Sabar and Jago Lee. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at WisemanPod. Where we'll be regularly asking you for questions for future episodes. You can also email us at WisemanPod at Podimo.com. And if you like this podcast, tell your friends, leave us a review. If you don't like it tell your friends you did why should you be the only ones to suffer although it does help others find us and don't forget to subscribe thanks bye 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 <laughs>